Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE for this afternoon's event, which forms part of LSE's ninth Space for Thought Literary Festival, which has been taking place all week with the theme Revolutions. My name is Jason Alexander, and I am a professor of philosophy at LSE. Today's event is hosted by the Center for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science at LSE and follows on from a talk earlier this week by the philosopher and professor John Worrell on how scientific revolutions in the past, particularly those associated with Copernicus and Darwin, changed humankind's perception of its place in the universe and turned our world upside down. This lunchtime, we are going to look at the implications of the radical scientific and technological advancements happening now. I'm very pleased to welcome Luke Dormel, Laurie Penny, and Nick Srunik for this discussion. Luke Dormel is a technology author and journalist with a background in documentary film. His books include The Apple Revolution, The Formula, and most recently, Thinking Machines, the inside story of artificial intelligence in our race to the future. Laurie Penny is a journalist and author, most recently of the novella Everything Belongs to the Future, which explores a future where the rich can pay to extend their lives for centuries. She is a contributing editor and columnist for The New Statesman and a frequent writer on social justice, pop culture and gender issues, and digital politics for The Guardian and many other publications. Her blog, Penny Red, was shortlisted for the Orwell Prize in 2010. Nick Srunik is a lecturer in international political economy at City University of London. He is the author of Platform Capitalism and Inventing the Future and currently writing After Work. I should note that is the title of the book and not actually the time at which he's writing it. Luke, Laurie, and Nick will begin by setting out their visions of the future of humanity thanks to various scientific advancements, and then we will have a discussion opening up to questions from the audience. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSE LitFest. I would ask you to please put your phones on silent so as to not disrupt the event. The event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. After the event, the panel will be around to sign copies of their books, which are on sale at the festival bookstall. Now, I would like to invite Luke Dormel to start us off with his vision of the future. Join me in welcoming Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming today. Um, when I was preparing for this talk, uh, there was one part of the question which really leapt out at me, and that's whether fear is overriding optimism in our approach to the future. And it reminded me of an anecdote about the British inventor William Lee in 1589. Lee had, an inve- had invented an automatic stocking knitting machine. Now, according to legend, he did this because the woman he was wooing at the time showed more interest in knitting than she did in him which has always seemed sort of a strangely misguided way to win someone's affections by putting them out of business. But William Lee travelled to London and, at uh, considerable expense to himself, rented an entire floor of a building with the aim of showing his machine to Queen Elizabeth. The Queen dutifully turned up at the demonstration but refused to grant Lee a patent because, in her own words, thou aimest high, Master Lee. 
Consider thou what the invention could do to my poor subjects. It would assuredly bring to, bring to them ruin by depriving them of employment, thus making them beggars. Now, you can argue about the merits of this decision, which was largely based on the fact that England at the time had powerful guilds which defended their interests against outsiders, including new technologies. However, the fact that I had to go back to 1589 illustrates that this kind of anti-innovation people-first approach isn't our standard way of thinking about these issues today. In fact, there can be no question that optimism, not fear, is driving innovation at present. Artificial intelligence and robotics are the things that I write about more than any other subject, and they're going to have an enormous impact on various aspects of our lives, including employment. But these are things which aren't just in the future. These things are already happening. They're not being halted by fear. Already we have smart AI assistants, which can be found on the smartphones of, I would warrant, about 95% of this audience. We have self-driving cars. We have algorithms being used, as was announced in New Jersey just this week, as part of the criminal justice system to determine whether a, a pretrial defendant should be let out on bail. We have machine translation capable of effortlessly translating between hundreds of languages in an instant and in a way that's getting better all the time. We have facial recognition technology that's used in retail stores, on cruises, in security systems, and somewhat unnervingly in some churches so that people can be singled out and identified. These are just a few examples. But it's clear that uh, optimism, if if you choose to phrase it that way, has won. I always find myself sort of desiring to some measure be the contrarian voice depending on the audience I'm speaking with. This does sort of, I suppose, uh, involve uh, kind of gauging an audience's reaction before I've arrived at an event, but it it generally sort of divides down according to whether you're speaking to a tech audience who think that any problem can be solved with the right app, or dare I say it, a sort of a literary um, festival audience uh, whose view of technology can often sort of veer more to the, 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 the negative. And as someone from a humanities background, I understand um, some of those fears, but I also think that there's a lot of reason to be optimistic about the future. AI and robotics are transforming our lives um, for the better. Every week I'm fortunate enough to speak with many, many researchers around the world who are doing some tremendous work um, or people who are having their lives positively impacted by by AI. I'm not just talking about the CEOs of major companies who are benefiting from these systems in the way that wealthy executives have always benefited from new technologies and means of production. I'm talking about regular men and women around the world. For example, there are now robotic exoskeletons which are helping disabled people to walk again, like Mark Daniel, an incredibly inspiring paraplegic man I had the opportunity to interview who was left without any mobility below his waist after a car accident in 2007. Using exoskeleton technology, Mark's not only able to walk again, but also to be involved in athletics, including a recent so-called Robot Olympics A machine learning project that's being developed at Washington State University is kitting out the home of elderly people with smart sensors that can be used with the right data to predict patterns of behavior. For example, early-onset neurological disorders could be spotted by someone opening and uh, um, repeatedly opening cupboard doors but never taking anything out or possibly leaving the stove on. By doing this, and I should point out that this doesn't involve uh, cameras, it's possible to give someone the dignity of living in their home for longer since caregivers can be alerted of changes in behaviour which might otherwise be imperceptible. 
Then there are tools like Siri, the voice assistant found on our iPhones, which still isn't at the level uh, where it can carry out human-like uh, conversations. And I know that a lot of people like myself would worry about the suggestion that uh, AI could replace a human in a conversational capacity. But it turns out that AI, like Siri, has proved life-changing in the case of some people with autism. An article published in the New York Times a couple of years ago described how the author's 13-year-old autistic son, who was very isolated from a lot of other people and peers, found it easy to talk to Siri. That's because Siri, as the author writes, is wonderful for someone who doesn't pick up on social cues. The responses are not entirely predictable, but they are predictably kind, even when her son is brusque. Um, She said, I heard Gus talking to Siri about music, and Siri offered some suggestions. Um, I don't like that kind of music, Gus snapped. Siri responded, you're certainly entitled to your opinion. Siri's (laughs) politeness reminded Gus what he owed Siri. Thank you for the music, though, he said. And Siri said, you don't need to thank me. And Gus said, oh, yes, I do. Now, it's easy to say that these examples are cherry-picked from the vast swathes of technology stories that are out there in the digital ether. And that's true, but there are a lot more like it. Algorithms that are designing satellite components, which will help connect us as a planet. AI that can help diagnose disease. Chatbots, which are allowing people with, um, uh, who, who, don't, who lack reading skills in parts of the world, uh, like, for example, rural India, to, dem- to participate in the democratic process. Every week, I get to write about these projects and others like them, and I'm repeatedly convinced that we have every reason to be optimistic about where some of these technologies are taking us. Are there questions and fears? Of course there are. And I hope that we'll delve into some of them today. One of the dangers I see with technology is that we somehow believe it to be objective. When you or I enter a search term into Google, we get different search results based on what Google thinks that we'll be interested in. Uh, That's great for personalization and speed. It's possibly not so good for broadening our horizons since, since the information that Google shows us tends to flatter our personal mythologies. The classic example of this, by the way, is that if a left-leaning person Googles BP, they'll get information about the notorious oil spill. If a right-leaning person Googles BP, they'll get investment advice. (laughs) And neither of these are wrong, but they both leave out part of the picture, and they help us become more polarized in our views, not necessarily more informed. The invisibility of these processes can also be a challenge. Facebook constantly tweaks its newsfeed algorithms, sometimes even openly experimenting on its users by hiding certain types of posts in a way that renders some stories invisible while highlighting others. Google Maps has also done a similar thing in terms of highlighting event or places around us that it thinks we might be interested in, which again risks ghettoizing certain places that we may not be you know, otherwise exposed to. Um, Right now, we're also seeing a number of these kind of questions playing out on on Twitter with the conflict between uh, sort of free speech and the anarchic, you can say whatever you want, spirit that made the internet so exciting and liberating, clashing with the question of how you remove or control unsavory elements and sort of crack down on problems like cyberbullying without becoming unnecessarily authoritarian. 
Um, there's also the question of accountability. If we're going to roll out robots as elements of the police force, for instance, as the creators of a recent robot called the Sentinel, which I wrote about this week, which promises to perform the first step of uh, traffic stops for police to ensure the safety of both parties. If we roll these systems out, and if they involve a sort of an autonomous element, how do we scrutinize that behavior? In a world where human programmers can't explain exactly how the neural networks that they create work, um, who do we hold accountable if something goes wrong? And what's going to happen to all of these jobs that are displaced by automation? Will new jobs be created in equal numbers, as has happened with previous shifts in technology? Should we tax robots like people, as Bill Gates recently suggested? Or should we proactively think about a universal living wage and hand all the dull and unpleasant work over to machines? These are questions that we'll face in the coming years. And this isn't just some sort of uh, future with a capital F that's hundreds of years away. These are things which are happening now and issues that we're going to deal with in the next few years. And what's interesting and potentially promising is that for the first time, these are questions which aren't just being asked by sort of chin-stroking academics on the final page of a PhD thesis, but they're starting to be explored by lawmakers, politicians, and as the audience here today shows, become questions that are, are embraced by the general public. Technology in itself is not autonomous, no matter what self-driving cars may suggest. This is where I diverge from both the extreme techno-optimists and pessimists. Decisions about how we structure the world and how we apply these technologies to hurt people or to make a fairer, more meritocratic society are ones for us as individuals and nations to decide. I'd like to finish with a quote from Paul Virilio, the cultural theorist, who once noted that the inventor of the ship is also the inventor of the shipwreck. Both of these are intrinsically connected, and we have to ask whether we value the, the, what, what the ship brings more than we fear what the shipwreck could. And that's something that we need to ponder um, collectively. And I hope that today's conversation can elucidate at least part of that conundrum. Thank you very much. All right, and our next speaker will be Nick Srinik. Uh, well, thank you, everybody, for coming out, uh, and thank you to the organizers uh, for inviting me. Um, actually, do you know how this uh, PowerPoint works? No, I'm afraid I don't. Oh, wait, I think I've got it here. Okay, um, so I wrote a book about, uh, well, demanding the future, uh, essentially. Uh, I think one of the sort of symptoms of our time uh, is that we've forgotten to remember what the future actually is. Uh, we've given up on any sort of utopian ideas uh, of the future. Uh, and I think we see this from across the spectrum, across the political spectrum. Uh, if we look at, say, the radical left, we have this massive focus on resistance, uh, and resistance is, you know, the watchword uh, that every activist puts out. Uh, but we have to be remembering that actually resistance is trying to conserve something. Uh, resistance is not the active force. It's not trying to bring about a new world. It's trying to save something against some other active force. Uh, if we look at the political right, we have people like Donald Trump, uh, Make America Great Again, which invokes the past not just by adopting Ronald Reagan's slogan, uh, but also by this idea that America was once great and we're going to return to that. 
Uh, if you're an academic, uh, the best way to get an academic t uh, career uh, is to critique everything. Um, don't make any positive proposals for the future because you'll get lambasted for it. Uh, so I think across our culture, we, we've forgotten what the future is all about. We've, we've lost any sort of sense uh, of what a utopian world might look like. Uh, and I think this is one of the major political tasks, regardless of your political beliefs. I think we have to remember, uh, we have to develop new utopias for today. Uh, so we have to foster utopian imagination. Now this doesn't mean coming up with sort of radical crazy ideas that bear no relationship to the world as it exists today. Uh, I think if we're going to make a sort of meaningful utopian imagination, we have to ground it in things that are happening today. Uh, and I think one of the dominant realities is the things that Luke touched upon, uh, which is automation. Uh, now, automation is fundamental to capitalism uh, as an economic system. Uh, it's, I would argue, the primary tendency of capitalism. So we look from the very beginning, uh, you know, back in the 1800s, we've got the mechanization of agriculture going on. Uh, so the replacement of humans doing farm work, uh, replacing them with machinery uh, of all types. Now, if we look at something like the assembly line, again, this is a process of automation. This is the way in which capitalism has developed. Uh, if we look in the 1970s, we start to see lean production. Uh, and today, we're starting to see a whole new wave of automation. Now, I think it's quite interesting that uh, these technologies that we're talking about, it's worth recalling how new they actually are. Uh, so the iPhone, for instance, came out in 2007. Uh, you know, the smartphone is essential to our social lives today. It's less than a decade old. Uh, the internet is, you know, not much older as well. Uh, we've got digital assistance, so Siri came out in 2011. Uh, Self-driving cars, uh, as, as little as 10 years ago, people were confidently saying that self-driving cars were impossible. And then Google started up a project in 2009, uh, and now we've got Uber rolling out self-driving cars uh, in Pittsburgh and Arizona. Uh, so this is rapidly developing, a rapidly changing set of technologies. Uh, and all of it's premised upon, well, big data in the first place. So we're able to collect a huge amount of data nowadays. Uh, we've got machine learning, or what we're starting to call AI. Uh, and we've got advanced robotics as well. Uh, so we've got robots, for instance, that you could throw an egg at it and they can catch it without crushing it. Uh, some pretty amazing stuff. Now the problem is, this automation is going to take jobs. Uh, you've probably all heard some of the major uh, statistics. The most famous one is probably an Oxford study which says that 47% of American jobs could be automated over the next two decades. Now this is could be automated. It doesn't mean they will be automated, but this is sort of the outer reaches of what is possible uh, in terms of job automation. What you may not know is that a similar study was done for the EU. And it suggested that 54% of jobs in the EU could be automated. Uh, the Bank of England here in the UK uh, did its own similar study, and it suggested that 15 million jobs could be automated over the next two decades, uh, which is about half of the labor force here. I think a really important thing to note, though, is that this threat of automation is not just a rich country problem. And in fact, when we start looking at developing economies, it's actually a more significant problem there. Uh, so this graph comes from a World Bank report where it looks at uh, different countries, and it shows that, for instance, China, 77% of jobs could be automated there, Nigeria, 65%, uh, and the highest one I've seen, which is Ethiopia, a full 85% of their current jobs could be automated. So this is a global challenge for us. 
Uh, and we have to sort of think about, well, how do we respond to this? This is going to happen in some way, shape, or form. Even if it doesn't lead to mass unemployment, it is going to lead to, uh, lead to people leaving their jobs uh, and having to find new jobs. It's going to involve a, social, uh, a massive social change. Now, I think we can look at this very pessimistically, and we can sort of push back against it, or we can look at this more optimistically and think about how do we take advantage of these existing changes uh, to build a utopian world. Uh, so for me, this involves four key demands. Uh, the first demand is full automation. Uh, so this is the idea that capitalism as an economic system, if given the opportunity, would prefer cheap workers rather than an expensive robot. Uh, and this is partly the problem of the UK right now. Uh, we've got a very low-wage economy, which means businesses are hiring lots of people, but they're not investing in automation. They're not investing in robots in the UK. Uh, and this is uh, why we have to actually push for more automation than what capitalism actually wants. It can't just be deemed what is profitable for a business. Uh, we have to push automation further and further. Now, on top of that, we need a three-day weekend or a reduction in the working week. Uh, and I love this graphic here. This, this goes from uh, uh, some old labor movement propaganda about the eight-hour workday, uh, sort of updated for the 21st century. Uh, but this is, you know, this is what we need to be thinking about. How do we reduce the working week? Uh, if we're going to have less work overall, we need to spread that work out evenly. And I think this means thinking about things like a three-day weekend. Uh, the added benefit of this is that this is, I think, absolutely essential to battling climate change. So there's been studies done about what would happen if America's work week went down to the EU's average work week. Uh, and they would save about 20% of their energy costs in America. So this is a huge amount of energy that's saved by people not commuting to work every day, uh, not turning on the lights in the office, not running these factories every day. So if we cut down the work day by one day, or the work week by one day, uh, we can also battle climate change at the same time. Now, the third demand uh, is for what's called a universal basic income. Uh, a couple years ago when I started talking about this stuff, I don't think most people had heard of it. I imagine today most people have heard of a universal basic income. Uh, if you haven't, it's the idea that the government provides a basic minimum amount of money to everybody with no questions asked. So it doesn't matter whether you're working or not. Uh, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You just receive this income as part of the rights of citizenship. Uh, and the idea here is that if there's not enough jobs, well, people need an income. Uh, capitalism needs consumers. So a basic income solves these problems. It provides for people. It allows them to survive even if there aren't enough jobs. Uh, it also gives people freedom. And I think this is one of the most important aspects is that suddenly with the basic income, you can decide whether or not to take that crappy job or you can decide to go back and get a better education. Uh, you can decide to stay at home and take care of your children, uh, develop a hobby. You get to decide once you have a basic income. Uh, so I think it's really this moment of uh, developing freedom in society through a basic income. Now lastly, whenever I raise all these topics, the, the sort of question always comes about, uh, don't people like work? Uh, and I think people do. I think people get a real sense of accomplishment through work, uh, an achievement. Uh, but there's a sort of bad sense of enjoyment from work, which is this work ethic idea uh, the idea that you're only valued if you're working hard. 
the idea that you have to be paid in order to be a valued member of society, uh, the idea that our identities are based upon our work. So if you meet somebody new for the first time, the first question you might ask is, you know, well, what do you do? And you never mean, what are their hobbies? You don't care about that. You mean, what is your job? Uh, and this is, you know, work is so central to our societies, and I think this is really problematic. I think we have to get rid of the work ethic, and we have to be thinking about alternative sorts of ethics of play, uh, sort of rejuvenating these ideas of leisure society uh, if we want to fulfill these sort of utopian promises uh, of technology. Thank you. All right, and our final speaker is Lori Penny. All right, so is this, is this high enough? I, I don't know if I need a box to stand on, I'm sorry. Um, let me see, is, is that, can, can people hear me like this? What about like this? Not really? Okay, all right, person at the back can hear, it's fine. And you've got a lot of hair over your ears, so that's all right. Right, hi. Uh, firstly, thank you, thank you for having me. This, it's really, really great to be here, and uh, thank you for the, to organize, for the organizers and for the two previous speakers. Um, I kind of want—I know we're meant to be—I know we're meant to be talking in quite a positive way about visions of the future, but I actually kind of wanted to talk about the end of the world, if that's okay with everyone. Um, which is because uh, I think these two ideas sort of go go hand in hand, our ideas of apocalypse and, um, and I think the, idea, uh, the ideas we have about the end of the world shape the future we want to create. So I, I just wanted to kind of start with a question which is like, how is everyone feeling about the future right now? Can I, can I just like ask for some hands up if you're feeling generally more positive about the state of the future than you were about, say, let's say, six months ago. Anybody? <laughs> oh, what's gone on with you? Something great must have happened. Like, um, no, hands up if you're feeling generally more positive in a... It's, hang on, no, hands up if you feel that, you know, your personal long-term plans have shifted somewhat in the past six months because of, say, geopolitics. Anyone? Yeah, you, don't be shy. It's all right. Yep. Yeah, it's quite a few people. All right, so there is this general there is this general sense I feel like right now of the end of civilization, the end of the world. That the people talk about apocalypse in everyday conversation. Right? I was on um I was talking to a friend on Facebook the other day and um it was just about a, a tiny practical thing, and then I ended up by saying, how are you? And she's like, oh, no, actually, things are going, going fine. You know, I'm working on my book. You know, the world's on fire. But um, apart from that, it's good. And that seems to be how I end every conversation these days. You know, apart from the world being on fire, apart from the end of everything, that's, a, you know, I'm doing all right. Um, and that seems, you know, I was going past a coffee shop the other day, and it said something like, I've seen this more than once, like, the end of the world is nigh, coffee will help. <laughs> like, it's, people have worked it into advertising, it's such a regular part of conversation, and this has been, I've been fascinated by this, um, because there is some um, millenarianism, which I can never pronounce, end of the world thinking, apocalyptic thinking, crops up again and again 
in the history of human society. It crops up at times of uh, intense social change, social upheaval, and uh, it crops up at times when you know, the world is changing very fast, people don't know what to do, and it crops up when there is a shift in power structures. Um, and uh, it is also, I would argue, uh, essential to the formation of capitalism as, as, we, as we know it today. Um, in his fantastic book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, David Graeber argues that um, capitalism always requires, in order, well, at least modern capitalism, requires a sense of calamity in order to function properly, particularly late-stage capitalism. Because if you think about it, um, capitalism, capitalism's acquisitional tendencies and capitalism's growth tendencies require are antithetical to the idea of long, what science fiction writers and um, uh, anthropologists call deep time or long time. Now, that's kind of a complicated sentence. What I actually mean by that is, right, so if you are, say, in the oil industry, what you really don't want is a population with a really, you know, a strong sense that, it's worth planning for 200, 300 years of future. You, generally speaking, want a population that is pretty much okay with only thinking 20, 30 years into the future, maybe about their kids, but not really about their grandkids. This has been pretty easy, particularly over the last 60, 70 years, because there's been a huge apocalyptic tendency in Western thought um, and, and in global thinking brought on first by um, the, the nuclear age, the Cold War, and lately by both um, the quote-unquote war on terror and by, the, by climate change, by the thinking around climate change, which, is, um, which poses a problem because, you know, uh, climate change is something, is a very different kind of apocalypse. It's something we can actually technically stop. And um, I'll come to that later or maybe in questions if we can. This is, um, I wrote an essay about this for the Baffler lately, um, uh, about um, how different visions, it's not just visions of the end of the world, it's different visions of the end of the world which um, affect the way we think and the way we structure the societies we want to see. And um, this relates quite, this relates back to something, um, to, to what both um, Luke and Nick were saying, particularly what Nick was saying about the idea that the left has no vision of a future. And I, we hear this again and again, and it's true, but it's not just the left. It is, you know, across society, for at least um, since, you know, the neoliberal age, there has been a resistance to an idea that there is any possible future that is better than this one in a broad, structural way. We hear ideas about the end of history, ideas that this is as good as it's ever going to get, and all you can really argue for is to stop things getting worse quite so fast. And that's really what the left has been going for, with the broad left, for at least as long as I've been political and, you know, vaguely an adult. And, um, hey, don't laugh. <laughs> I'm 30 years old. Give me a break. Um, but, um, so, I sometimes have a problem with ideas of utopia and ideas of the perfect world. Um, and I even have a problem with that on the left because um, I think we have a tendency on the left to think in terms of one giant revolution which is, you know, in, 
in, its, uh, in the way we conceive of it, is not too different from ideas about the singularity being the rapture of the nerds. I think in some, way, rev- some ways revolution is like the rapture of the left, because there is this strain, and I'm not talking about revolution of, in itself, I mean revolution in the sense of one giant social change that will eventually someday come, but not now, um, which will change everything in one fell swoop and wipe away all human sin and people will be good and people will be happy. Um, and that has never really happened throughout history. Social change is more complicated than that. Um, we have a tendency in, in, across, political, across the political spectrum to think in terms of the big climactic change, the literal apocalypse, the root of the word apocalypse. is It literally means not just an end but an unveiling you know, the moment when mystery will be resolved and bewilderment will be ended and we will see things for what they really are, the truth of, of life and its meaning will be unveiled. And uh, literally, revelations is from the same root, uh, the book of the Bible. Um, in the United States, there has been a huge revival in apocalyptic and end times thinking within uh, the evangelical movement, which was, you know, four out of five evangelicals who really all go to the polls. Four out of five of them voted for Donald Trump. And some of them literally, I've been reporting in the U.S. for the last month and a bit, some of them literally think that this guy is the Antichrist. And they think that that's a good thing. Right. There, no, no, don't laugh. This is serious, and it's, uh, and it's actually it's, it's pretty scary. Um, there are people out there of all social classes who are in some ways actively anticipating the end of the world, and I think that's been true. That's true on the left. It's true on the right. And, you know, it's, it's been... This story about the end times has been part of our culture for a long, long time. I um, mean, just think about how many disaster movies and dystopian novels you've seen and read in the last few years, or even since you were a kid. You've heard versions of this story again and again. And because they are stories, they work in... They're, they're in a way... They're comforting. In a way, they're, they're stories about people, and they're stories about people surviving and making the best of things after the end of the world. And there are stories about people in some ways realizing their own humanity. And some, there is an adventurism there. There's a kind of idea that actually in some ways we'll, we'll realize who we really are and there'll be, you know, there'll be hope and there'll be you know, a, a better, purer way of living after all of this, um, this corrupt and degenerate modern society is swept away. It's a common theme. And I think it is, it is deeply, deeply regressive and very, very frightening, because the truth about the collapse of modern certainties that we are facing is that it's not... Well, the whole... One thing that, you know, leftist ideas of dystopia and utopia and religious ideas of dystopia and utopia share is the idea that after the great change to come, the righteous will be raised up the people who are on the right side of history or people who've made things okay with God will be somehow saved. Um, But actually, in the real world, in the catastrophes that we're in fact facing, it's not the righteous who will survive, it's the rich. Um, They are the people who will actually practically have the ability to ride out the coming changes. And you see that already. These are the people who are absolutely fine with burning the rest of the oil and absolutely fine with instituting kinds of automation that impoverish people across the world um, because that's what you know, they may as well do that. They want it to come down because it benefits them more that way. 
it's um, and I think that kind of apocalyptic thinking and that of which some kinds of utopian thinking are a part must be resisted. So which is why I mean I only have a, about two or three minutes left, but the point I'm trying to make is that it's not about uh, this is not this talk by the way is not an extended excuse for why I haven't come up with a vision of the future for you guys. <laughs> like seriously. Um, um, the point is it's not the point I'm trying to make is it's not the ideological and cultural war right now is not between competing visions of the future. It's between people who can envision a future and people who cannot. That whole make America great again, like Nick said, it's the again is the key word, is because people who cannot envision a future of any kind in which they will be able to live can only reckon the present in terms of what they feel they've lost. And that's really, really significant in terms of what we're seeing in terms of a rise in racism, rise in bigotry across the world, particularly in the West. You know, ISIS is also an apocalyptic end times cult. Um, this is, um, and you know, the thinking that underlies it, it's not, it's, it's uh, you, can, you see it in lots and lots of patriarchal end times apocalyptic religions or religious tendencies um, throughout human history. It was a huge facet in um, medieval Christianity in Europe. Um, the, um, so it's, it's about, I think it doesn't really matter what your vision of the future is as long as you have one and you work towards it and you try and build something um, Victor Verge, the science fiction writer, uh, says that utopia is the search for utopia. Um, you're never actually going to get to this ideal, perfect world. The, the, but the important, the, the way, to, the important thing about having those visions is that you have something that you feel you can work towards. And it's not a, just about hope. Hope is kind of a. I feel it's a bit. We think of it in this twee way. Um, but hope is not about you know, opt just optimism and you know, pretending everything is going to be okay. Hope is the courage to try to build something better and take a risk rather than just count up what you have and prepare for things to get worse and worse and worse. And I want to kind of end on uh, this question about technology um, because uh, both of the previous speakers have focused a lot on technology and its implications, and, and that's... That's vital and important. But I want to make the point that I've spoken a lot about cultural structures and you know, how we conceive the future and philosophy. But I think those things, are, those things are key to how technology operates. Um, because in many respects, we have the technology already to change the world completely if we wanted to. Some of those technologies already exist. Um, the question is what you do with them. And the mo one of the clearest ways to look at this is um, when it comes to reproductive technology um, and uh, contraception and abortion technology, which um, as a feminist writer I'm really, really deeply interested in. Um, we have had for the past 70 years now the technology to make biological inequity basically a thing of the past. We have had the technology to fundamentally restructure the nature of the relationship between men and women, the nature of what, you know, we have the technology to explore what gender really means, to utterly change the nature of gendered work and uh, gendered economic power. What we have not had is the social will to do that. And our things have changed. 
I'm, I'm not saying that things haven't changed. There have been huge, huge changes in what, you know, in uh, the state of gender relations across the world, but those changes haven't come fast enough, and there have been huge pushbacks, you know, constant pushbacks against contraception, against the right to legal abortion. Um, This is just one of the ways in which our technological infrastructure is many generations ahead of our cultural infrastructure. And I think when we look at, you know, we can't look at technology separately from looking at how it's, um, from how it's used culturally, and that's really what it's on critics and writers and thinkers and artists and academics to do. Um, I, my publisher will be angry at me if I don't mention this little book I wrote, but that's kind of what I was trying to do with it. The book is quite flawed. Like it's, I'm a journalist trying to write a short novel, basically, and, and, and you can tell. But, like, you know, and so um, if I had, like, five more minutes, I'd summarise it for you so you don't have to read it. So, like, seriously, <laughs> it's fine. But I was basically trying to sketch out a a a future in which science can be applied in different ways and anti-aging technology can be applied in different ways depending on how it's figured within an economic system and various... And I had a really complicated idea about how that would relate to the Piketty equation and it was probably a very, very bad idea to try and turn that into a novel. But but they published it anyway. And um, so, yeah... But, uh, you know, it's, it's about these kind of thought experiments are vital to how we apply technology, which is why, like, I'm, I'm really interested to see what you guys are going to ask. And we have quite a long time for questions and answers now, don't we? So, like, it's important to have conversations rather than just, like, us talking at you and scientists talking to each other. Um, it's, uh, I have about another page of notes, but I'm going to stop there, if that's okay. Um, thank you very much. All right, I'd like to thank our three speakers for three very different sets of concerns and hopes and issues that are all related to the future of humanity. I'll now open the floor for questions from the audience. If you can please let us know your name and affiliation and wait for the microphone uh, to get to you before you begin to ask your question. That would for be the much. robot to come around to scan your irises. Yeah. <laughs> and also, if you could please ensure that your question is actually a question. That would also be much appreciated. All right, so can we start with that person right there in the fourth row? Hi, thanks. Uh, my name's Stuart. I'm a PhD in philosophy. Yeah, finishing up a PhD. Um, I have a question for Nick, and then I have a question for the panel. My question for Nick is, uh, I find your unapologetic utopianism uh, a little surprising. Um, uh, given that there's a great deal of thought out there that tells us utopianism is closely related to totalitarianism. And uh, I think of Karl Popper's idea that we're in complex adaptive systems that are very hard to predict. And the only way a utopian thinker can achieve their vision is through a sort of very forceful imposition on society. And Popper, of course, analyzed uh, communist revolutions to show that that's what was happening. Uh, so I'm interested in your views on the, the swaths of literature out there that says utopian thinking is dangerous. And then the question for the panel is that we can amuse ourselves by digging up predictions about the future from the past that get it so hopelessly wrong. And I wonder if you think that there's something fundamental about technological change at the moment that has allowed it to become more predictable, 
such that we won't in 20 years' time be laughing at what we're saying today. Uh, is there, do you have a view that we're on safer ground in making predictions today? Thank you. So, Nick first and then the panel. Yeah, uh, really good question. Um, I, think, I think you're partially right, but I think there's a sort of a different strand of utopian thinking as well. Um, it doesn't have to lead to authoritarianism on the first place. So you think about neoliberalism, for instance. It's nothing if not a sort of market utopia, uh, which has nothing to do with the state dominating all of society. Instead, it's supposed to be uh, this idea that uh, leaving the market and society free to do what it wants. Um, so I think neoliberalism is a type of utopia as well that doesn't lead to authoritarianism in a traditional sense. More broadly, I think we can see utopian stuff in the early labor movement, if you go back to like the early 20th century, the labor movement in the United States filled with utopian visions and utopian stories. If we go back to the 1960s and 70s and the feminist movement, filled with utopian visions at that point as well. And I think there's a sort of important distinction to be made between uh, utopianism as a sort of uh, a model and hope and inspiration for a better future versus utopianism being taken as something which could actually be implemented. And I think when a political party or a political state gets this idea that utopianism could actually be implemented fundamentally the way it's set out, I think that's when we start to get authoritarian sort of leanings. Uh, for me, sorry, utopianism is much more, it's much more about the affective level than it is about uh, being a plan for the future, per se. Can I come back on that? Yeah, yeah I, I, completely, um, I completely agree. Um, in that I, I think it's really important to, when we talk about utopia, particularly on the left, not to just have a vision that there is one way that the world should be, which we kind of love to do on the left. It's sort of like a hobby, and it's how we, you know, how we amuse ourselves as we wait for the, the state to crumble eventually and um, how we, you know, shore each other up in moments of, uh, of, of cultural backlash by just having a giant fight amongst ourselves. It's a feature, not a bug. But um, I think utopianism is fantastic as long as it's not prescriptive. Uh, I would advocate a more kind of ADD approach to utopian thinking. And again, like if you look at feminist and anti-racist writings in the uh, in the sixties, seventies, eighties, I'm a I've, I'm a I've got kind of a nerdy interest in, uh, particularly in in, uh, in pure feminist uh, science fiction and all kinds of science fiction by um, uh, female political thinkers uh, in that time, and um, they sketch out a lot of really awesome future societies, any of which I'd be happy to live in, actually. You know, I read all of these, I'm like, that sounds pretty good. But that one sounds pretty good, too. You know, honestly, I'm easy. Like, if we, if we could do some of these things, that sounds fine. And I think that I'm open-minded about which particular future I live in as long as people are actually working towards one. Um, also, I really recommend that people dig out some of the um, uh, women's press science fiction from the 1980s because it, cause it's amazing. It's exactly what happens if you get... Um, hardcore feminist linguist academics and then ask them to write a novel and um, and they're brilliant you know I mean then some of them aren't amazing books but like they're, they're great it's, anyway sorry can I grab the I know yeah, so no over question it's, it's about prediction yeah. um, yes you're, firstly you're, you're, you're quite correct the history of I mean this certainly isn't unique to computer science but that's sort of the, 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 the area that I write about so the history of particularly artificial intelligence 
is littered yeah. with um, terrible predictions. In fact, if you go back, last year uh, was the anniversary of artificial intelligence being formed as its own discipline named artificial intelligence. In 1956, you had a group of um, sort of computer scientists who met up in, in, in uh, Dartmouth in America and had pitched this idea of a rolling summer conference. And they basically sort of said, you know, if you, if you give us six weeks, we should be able to come up with a computer which can act and think like a person. And, of course, <laughs> so, so, so that's sort of getting things off on a bad foot. And I kind of feel like even though significant advances have been made since then, in some ways sort of journalists need to, to take some of the blame for this. There was a great... Um, Back in the 1960s, there was a robot which was developed in America at uh, SRI called Shaky the Robot, which was able to sort of careen down a, a, a corridor, and it was fairly advanced for its time, and it actually represented some fairly exciting breakthroughs. But journalists couldn't... So that wasn't enough for them. So when they wrote the story up, they sort of said, oh, you could put it on the moon and it could, you know, live an autonomous life. And there was a kind of a micro story there, which was actually quite correct. And then a sort of a macro story, which was this sort of moon nonsense, which, you know, sort of made, which, of course, now we look back and we think, what a ridiculous thing to, to say. One of the big problems I find, actually, when it comes to predicting the future with technology, certainly in terms of what some of the advances that we've seen recently, and Nick uh, alluded to this, is the fact that um, a lot of uh, the problems have come when people have actually said a computer will never be capable of, of performing a particular task. Um, back in 2004, um, a number of American academics published a book where they talked about the tasks that a machine would be capable of automating and those that it wouldn't and the uh, example that they came up with of something that could never be automated was uh, driving a car and that was because there were so many different sources of sort of input that it needs to balance in terms not just of you know the, the the structure of the road and the laws it needs to obey but also the kind of the complexity of the scene it needs to process and of course we now look back and we think you know not that far removed that's that's completely wrong. In terms of what uh, uh, Laurie talked about, about this kind of grand narrative of technology in some senses, and again, this isn't, you know, a, a number of different academics and fields have had this idea of the grand narrative. I, I try and steer clear of, of, of that, which is why in my talk I tried to sort of root things on based on what's happening now. I think any technologist who tries to paint a picture of where things are heading that are headed that goes beyond five years it's sort of cause to be slightly skeptical because any technology doesn't just rely on sort of Moore's law or the amount of computing power that we have which can be sort of broadly predicted in terms of the sort of the regular increments that we've we can observe that it's sort of increased and so where it might be five years from now but it also relies on a huge amount of sort of social change and political change and a number of complex factors so I it's also why I try and sort of steer clear of this idea of the singularity and the idea at you know at what point computers are going to be able to perform tasks with the same sort of generalized intelligence as a human because again as we saw from the 1956 conference people have been predicting this for a long time and it has yet to sort of come into effect so I try and look at where we are now and not forecast beyond sort of five years I think anyone anything beyond that is is perilous uh, uh, terrain all right very good can we get to another question from the audience so at the back was uh, headed, up right, at the start. right. So, 
in the interest, I guess, of being fair and balanced, let's take a question from the back on the right. So, right, that gentleman, second to last. Yes, thank you for your talk. So very interesting. Um, my name's Paul Clifton. Um, my sorry, could you speak up a little bit? Sorry, yes. My question um, is with regard to the idea of a, a universal income. And to my mind, that's an excellent idea, both um, socially and economically. But doesn't this potentially cause huge problems for the movement of people? Uh, because you, you'd have a tremendous flood of people coming into the richer companies, countries sorry, um, if you had no restrictions on new entries. On the other hand, if you do restrict new arrivals from um, participating in the uh, income, uh, you'll then end up with a sort of ancient Roman type of society with citizens and non-citizens, effectively. Yes, Sue, who would like to start? Um, yeah, so that, that's a really good question. I think uh, on a personal level, I find that the biggest sort of tension within thinking about a UBI. Uh, I, I'm committed to the idea of a UBI. I really like it. But I'm also committed to something like open borders. Uh, I think that this as a political project is uh, absolutely essential. Um, and I'm not, I'm, I have to admit, I'm not entirely sure how to reconcile them myself. Uh, there are examples that we can sort of look at, though. Uh, Alaska has a sort of proto-UBI right now. Um, so they've got a, a massive amount of oil wealth in Alaska, and they give everybody who lives there a basic amount of money um, for nothing. You know, you don't have to do anything. The way their system works is that you have to live there for a certain period of time uh, and in order to be able to receive it. And I think that something like that is um, uh, decently fair. I think, though... The real issue is in the long term, we have to get people out of poverty across the world. Uh, you know, the biggest motivator of people moving from one country to another uh, has to do with poverty and war. So if we can sort of work around, if we can work about those huge issues, uh, we can start limiting um, the sort of influx of immigrants and things like that. Um, but of course, that's, you know, another huge issue. Um, but I, I think it's a really important point to be raised, and I think there's something that... UBI proponents too often sort of just glide over. Uh, I think it is a real live issue, though. So I would just like to add something before going on to the rest of the panel, which is as someone who is actually born and raised in Alaska and having had the experience of the UBI, I would like to note that you don't actually quite have to do nothing to get that. You do have to live in Alaska, which is itself <laughs> not entirely all it's cracked up to be. So regarding the immigration concern, I suppose there's a natural disincentive for people to go there. <laughs> that said, let me turn it over to Luke. Yeah, I'm sort of fascinated by this idea of UBI, and I'm sort of deeply skeptical of aspects of it. Um, I suppose the first concern that I have is the idea that, uh, I suppose, that the level at which it is pitched, because it seems to me that if it's going to be pitched at a sort of a, a suitably low amount, then it essentially becomes a subsidy for companies to pay less to their workers. So essentially it becomes a sort of a, an, an extension of the idea of sort of tipping in restaurants. And, you know, can, can bosses get away with paying their workers less because they're, you know, they, they, they can assume that sort of tips will pick up the, the, the slack, I suppose. And then if you pitch it at the other end and you pay people a large amount of money, firstly you have the issue of where that money comes from, which always seems to be sort of phrased as a, a kind of a tax the rich thing, but that seems to be kind of 
I, I, I would just be interested to sort of hear a, an elaboration of that. And then the extension of this is the idea that somehow a universal basic income, if we're not going to work, and of course, even if a large number of people continued working, uh, if something like this was to be introduced, there would, of course, be some kind of drop in the labour force. And the idea that's linked in your book to this is the idea that we have total automation. And that kind of puts a timeline on this, because we're not yet at a stage where... I mean, you talked about the Oxford study from, I think, 2013, where they talked about how 47% of jobs could be automated within the next 20 years. That's not necessarily to say that they could be automated, carried out at the level that they currently are. You would lose something. You would simplify a certain amount of, of, that, um, of that job. And, of course, there are other types of job like sort of caregiving roles that you may never need to automate. So you're going to need some kind of a a skeletal uh, workforce uh, for this. So I sort of have um, questions about the timeline this could be carried out on, where the funding would come. But I just wanted to kind of make one other point, which I think is sort of related to this UBI theme, which uh, idea, which I think is quite interesting. And this was an idea put forward by uh, Jaron Lanier, who is a researcher in virtual reality, um, and he's also written a lot about technology. And he came up with the idea of having micropayments, which will be paid to people when a company uses your metadata in some way. So to kind of make sense of that, if you use Siri, for example, on your iPhone, or if you click a link on Google, or if you go on a dating website and you're you're sort of matched up with someone else, and then you report back on whether that's worked well... um, that data is then used to make these algorithms smarter so that the companies then have a more effective system which drives more more users. Um, He suggested that every time one of these recommendations is made using some of that metadata that you have generated, and this could be something like, you know, Google Translate as well, if you translate a document, and then that that sort of cognitive capital is is used in some way to um, improve the system, you would be um, able to receive a small micropayment, which is a little bit like, I don't know whether there are any journalists or, or bloggers in this room, but who get paid with sort of Google um, AdSense, where every time someone clicks on one of the pages you, you've written, you get a tiny micropayment, and at the end of the month this kind of adds up. And so you can sort of imagine a scenario where people are paid money by a number of different websites. So essentially you're making these companies' uh, products smarter, so you're sort of contributing something, you're getting something paid um, in exchange, and it kind of moves away from this slightly strange dichotomy that we have now where companies like Google get a huge amount of training data for for free because they ostensibly give their services away for free. And for me, that seems more, um, uh, possibly a more valuable thing than the idea of just handing out large amounts of money for for, for nothing, essentially. But I'd be interested to... Sorry, go ahead. No, um, just uh, coming back on on, uh, what everyone said... um, there's, uh, there's one point I'd like to pick up on um, that, that you just uh, mentioned a little while back. Is um, You said, I believe, that there are some jobs, like caring jobs, that we'd never want to automate. And that... Huh? Is that Siri? <laughs> Siri's not part of this discussion yet. Maybe we can automate panels in the future. God. Oh, no. Um, all right, but... Actually, um, this is really interesting, whether or not you can automate care work, because there has often been that assumption not, and that 
caring work and reproductive work could never, should never be automated. People would never want it to be automated. And there is, it goes hand in hand, I'm not saying this is what you're saying, but it goes hand in hand with the assumption that those kinds of work aren't really work at all. They're work that is done largely by women for free and largely by women and people of colour and migrants for very, very low wages because they are not real work. Now, actually, as it turns out, there are advances being made in terms of automation and robotics and care work. Um, it's not something that's covered as much as I believe it should be, particularly in the tech press, because the tech press likes to write more about you know, pizza drones and um, singing watches than you know, looking after old people. Uh, but there are huge... Um, there are advances in um, terms of robots that can do basic tasks in terms of senior care, for example. And as it turns out, there are a lot of people who would actually prefer their, some of their basic and perhaps less dignified needs to be... They would prefer a robot to be doing that rather than, say, their child or a care worker. They prefer that kind of autonomy. There are, you know... Um, there are lots of advances being made in that space where you, you wouldn't necessarily think that people would want a robot to do it rather than a human, but it turns out it's, it's better. And um, this is what, I mean, I think whatever we, however we approach ideas like universal basic income and automation, uh, but particularly with UBI, we have to remember that it is a, at root, a really, really radical demand. Um, it's something that changes the entire nature of our relationship as human beings to work and to the work ethic, which is, of course, a lot about what your book is about. And um, it's, um, there's a revival of this in terms of uh, feminist and anti-racist thinking as well, the nature of work. Whatever the universal basic income, if it is instituted, turned out, turns out to be, it will be a radical... Um, you know, pushback against the idea of the work ethic is mandatory, and that's why I think it will be really interesting to see how conservative governments and states push back against that, for example, by setting it very low, by using it to replace current welfare payment systems. It will be really, really interesting to see how and if that works. Can I quickly just elaborate on that point just because there was a point sure very quickly sorry no. I, I in terms of what you were suggesting about uh, a possible reading of what i said about uh, um the kinds of jobs that could be automated i think i was arguing the opposite because i was saying that certainly there are some types of job like for example if you look at something like for example law uh, sort of legal work or mm-hmm. work that would traditionally be carried out by a lawyer as sort of quote unquote bespoke work increasingly we're seeing that with artificial intelligence and expert systems a lot of this work that we thought was very bespoke and had a traditional sort of high value in society can actually be carried out by ai i'm suggesting the opposite in terms of what what the, the possible reading that you gave saying that caregiving work I'm far from saying it would be non-valuable I'm saying that this is actually something which is incredibly complicated and should be incredibly highly prized so it's not that it's um, somehow sort of too low to be automated and in terms of um, caregiving I think there is a fine line I mean there have been a number of really interesting um, technologies in in this area in Japan there was a a seal a seal a robot seal, seal called. I want one. Which is essentially, 
It's sort of like a smart teddy bear to a degree. It is able to kind of pick up on certain types of emotion. If you stroke it a certain way, then it kind of re- responds in, in, in sort of different ways. And this has proven to be very uh, sort of calming to people with dementia and, and, and things like this. That absolutely is very useful. We've clearly also got a problem with an aging population. And so at some point, some of these tasks, the, the more sort of manual tasks or possibly sort of lower grade jobs um, can be sort of automated, but certainly there are other things. You would never want, for example, to say, well, I won't go and see my... Or perhaps you wouldn't want to say, I won't go and see my grandma because we gave her Siri. Oh, you what? Know. What's <laughs> your grandma's really mean? So, so I think that there are sort of... Obviously, it, it, it's sort of uh, reducing it to say that some, some of these jobs could be automated, some could never be automated, but I think that it's important to acknowledge that there are going to be certain jobs you know artists yeah, yeah. is another one that may not oh, I would I would though uh, like I mean I know we need to get on to the next question yep. but I, as you were talking I was thinking we, we all kind of when you it's interesting when you hear people talking about often the people talking about universal basic income are operating on the assumption that their own jobs are not at risk like journalists oh, journalist, academic journalist. artists you know of course we, we don't want robots to do that you know, writer maybe, or you know, you couldn't want, wouldn't want a robot to write a novel, and that does that does probably change the terms of debate if we're arguing on this theoretical level and assuming on some level that maybe we're going to be all right for at least the next twenty, thirty years. Oh no, absolutely. Um, I just want to, yeah. I'm not quite sure about journalists, actually. Only journalists, I think, is gone. The Washington Post is doing Make some really machine. exciting work with um, using AI to, to 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 write up sports reporting. Well, There's a company sports, called you know. Nar- <laughs> Sorry. Hi. Narrative science, which is anyway, we should probably move to the next. So, yes. Just before we get the next question from the audience, I want to just uh, point out an interesting challenge in the discussion about universal basic income, which is a a philosophical and cultural problem, which is the the at least the dual role that work plays in society. So, work is very much a means for existence, but at the same time, given the interpretation of work, it is also seen as somehow an an indicator of personal virtue, Mm -hmm. and trying to see those decoupled in the way that's required for the universal basic income. I think it's an interesting cultural challenge because it's not clear that that's so easily doable in the minds of, of, of many people. Uh, can we get another question from the audience, please? Um, so could we get the individual sitting on the edge in the, the green shirt? Yes, please. Thank you. Um, I'm sorry I was so late. It was completely my fault. Um, and maybe you covered this when I wasn't here, but I remember a moment in 1983 when it felt like the universe changed. I had spent the summer in rural North Wales outside a village of 200 people where the children were, would be, little girls would be sitting, you know, they, they were everybody's children, where there was a, a, a memorial to the village poets. It's Lansan in a village of 200, a memorial to the village poets in the, in the village square. And... When I got back to the States, to Minneapolis, where I was living at the time, I went to walk around Lake of the Isles, as you do. There was a mother there with her little girl. The mother was roller skating. The little girl was learning to roller skate. She fell down, and her mother didn't notice because her mother had her Sony Walkman in her ears. And at that early time, that was technology, advanced technology. And the mom was disengaged from the child because of technology, and the child was just wailing her head off on the pavement, and the mother didn't notice. And I thought to myself, 
the world has changed. Years, years, years later, decades later in London, on the bus on Earl's Court Road, I heard an, an older Irish lady sitting behind me saying to her companion, and I can't do accents, I'm glad I'm on my way out and not coming in. And I'm kind of understanding a bit how she felt with some of this stuff that, that robots taking care of people in hospitals, and they are talking about that. You know, it, it, I just wonder if you could talk about the child raising, the interactions, the, all of this that seems to be, maybe I wasn't wrong that day at Lake of the Isles in Minneapolis. The world did change. So if my understanding of the question is that one of the consequences of much of current technological development is that it has led to a distancing or an undoing of certain social relations and that it means that we actually spend less time in direct social interaction with each other and more time communicating virtually. And this is, I think, a way of interpreting your question in a bit more broad scope. And so if I could turn that over to the panel. Look, I would say, thanks for your question. It's, um, um, I would say that kind of like, I don't think bad parenting is anything new, really. <laughs> like, I'm sure like 200 years before that, there were parents who were distracted by, I don't know, woodcuts or whatever, <laughs> and, and didn't see their kid falling down a hole or being sent off to a factory or whatever it was. Um, look, I think the difference now is that when that kid gets a bit older, uh, she'll probably be able to very quickly find an online support group for other people who had bad parents <laughs> and have people to talk to about how terrible her mum is and how about her she's always listening to whatever she was listening to on the Sony Walkman. Um, I think, look, it's, um, it's quite easy to... Uh, I, it's quite easy to be pessimistic about the social effects of technology. And I think there is a real, there is a very real sense in which people are becoming much, much more isolated. And, um, and there is a different kind of, uh, of sense of community being fostered. But I don't think that is, that's just an artifact of technology. I think in some ways technology can be very helpful for overcoming that. It's about broadening access to technology. People are being isolated in part because of the nature of work, the deliberate dismantling of community structures. And for a lot of people, technology is a great enabler. It's a great social enabler. If you look at the number, just, just for example, if you look at the number of disabled people and older people who are able to live much more connected lives because they have access to communication technology... Um, there's just one example. And, you know, the number of... Yeah, like, go back to the kid with the weird mum who is always listening to music. You, you can, there is a group for that. There are probably 100 groups for that you can just go and find as soon as you're, you know, old enough to log on. Um, I'm not as pessimistic about all that. I do think that young people today have incredible challenges. I think it is... We've done... Like, and I include millennials in this. Like, we have kind of landed the current generation of children and teenagers with an incredible task of changing and saving the world and I really don't envy them um, but I'm not sure that technology is, gonna, is the reason that that's happened at all that's my sure. um, yeah I would just broadly agree with that I think um, tech can be seen as a sort of isolating force but it is also a socialising force as well 
there's this really nice part of Paul Mason's um, book about the Occupy movements, um, which uh, he's, he's at this group and he sees somebody sort of talking on their phone, texting on their phone and stuff like that. And he's like, why are you being so antisocial? And they reply, well, actually, I'm being hypersocial. And there is this sort of aspect where actually, you know, we're using technology not to isolate ourselves from people, but actually uh, to engage with a much broader group of people. Uh, and Twitter is another good example of this, where, you know, Twitter gets a lot of shit for all of the trolling that goes on and all of the, uh, you know, all these attacks that go on on Twitter. But at the same time, there's all these marginal communities who have found like-minded people across the world through Twitter. Uh, and I think that's a really important socializing force as well. My last quick point is just that oftentimes I think our, the sort of critiques that we make of technology are actually displaced critiques of other things. So if you think that automation is a really big problem, well, it's not technology which is doing that. It's your boss who's doing that. Uh, it's the company who's doing that. So I think if we want to you know, attribute blame to certain things, we have to think about the broader social relations as well. I I mean, I, mean I, I, I was going to pick up on something which was sort of... I, 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 I'm never sure at these events whether you want to sort of move on to the next question and try and rattle through as many questions as possible or whether to kind of... I was just interested in, in what seems like a bit of a tangential issue, which is this kind of conflict which I see on the left, which seems to be this sort of conflict between... And, and this is sort of taking technology out of the equation it's on the one hand people who are very interested in the hyper local so you get sort of local currencies you get the idea of sort of local self uh, sort of sufficiency and sustainability and then on the other hand this idea of the kind of the the the, the global and sort of the open borders and this sort of thing and it this seems like it's quite a big conflict and it seems like in this case this is just playing out through sort of technological means with the kind of the loneliness of the of the, the Walkman on one hand and then the kind of the global nature of Twitter on the, on, on the other. But that seems like it's very much a debate which is happening now, particularly on the left where it seems like there's a big kind of conflict in, uh, in, 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 in this area. I'm really glad that nobody's used the word glocal yet because oh that needs to die. <laughs> anyway, let's is that, is that actually a I'm term? afraid so, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I was going to copyright it. All right. So another question from the audience. So could we get that individual in the front? Could we maybe take a few so, at once? Because we might not get... They're all... Could we maybe take a few questions? Okay, yes. So good point. So why don't we get uh, two or three questions? So let's start with that individual there in the front, and then let's go to that person there in, in the middle, and then a third question from that individual in the back. Right. So if you could... Just in the interest of time, if you could make your questions a bit brief, just so we have time to work through them all. And then we just do a mashup. And then we'll just do a mashup at the end. Yes, please. All right. Uh, first of all, thanks to the panel. Uh, fantastic so far. Um, I have, I'm going to be a bore and have another question on universal basic income. There's this critique that I've heard uh, from the left on it, which is that uh, by accepting universal basic income, we're abandoning our main sort of field or space of struggle, which is the workplace. Uh, we're, trying to, we're kind of giving up on the whole taking control of means of production and all that. So I want to see if you guys could address that. Uh, yeah, thank you. Okay, second question was that person right there. So. Sorry, yeah, hi. Um, I wanted to ask a question about the ethics of play. So really it's um, to Nick, but everyone. Um, and it's uh, uh, really about asking what steps are towards encouraging it. And I thought of a couple of things. I'll try and be really quick. One of them is uh, what you were talking about with freedom. Obviously, I think the workplace is very disabling. A lot of people who, fight, who identify as disabled, which I do at the moment, I'm not in work, and I do have to deal with that. What do you do question every day? Um, 
and that actually is a way of tackling it in terms of breaking down stigma one way and the other one is kind of what you were talking about Laurie before about recognizing variety of labor when we're talking about the ethics of play as well that's work but it's intellectual it's emotional labor and um are we going to be is that going is that kind of a part of how you're um identifying ethics of play because you spoke about hobbies and you spoke about writing in that and i see that as a form of labor so how would that work all right thank you and then the last question up there um thank you very much that was a very interesting discussion i just wanted to change the the sort of pattern that we've seen today and that we've seen technology as a kind of equivalent to maybe you know a utopian society and i wanted to sort of ask whether we could see it as on the opposite side almost a form of authoritarianism and i was just going to um sort of follow up on why i think that could be an interesting thing is because we've seen you know supermarkets like amazon where you know no longer have uh, workers in them you have a completely automated thing um and it seems like a lot of people at least in the uk when you go for the queue in tesco or sainsbury's actually prefer the human presence and that's just one you know example but the same can go for things like you know we almost feel um oblige sometimes to use technology to get around now it's easier to go on tube map and city map and figure out when your tube strike is than than previously as you would have gone on a normal map so it seems like in many of these changes we have absolutely no say um and the base of technology is no longer dictated by um our our choice but more by by the supranational structures that dictate that advanced pace so i wonder whether we can argue that technology is in fact determining a society where it's to be ultimately seen as almost an authoritarian regime where we have to abide by that and just your quest your 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 opinions on that all right so should we just start in the lorry yeah i'd like to um if i can take sort of the the first two questions as both the idea that you know if we're going for universal basic income we're abandoning the workplaces the traditional site of leftist struggle what i i honestly i I don't think that the workplace should be the only site of leftist struggle. I think that is a um many thinkers since Marx have expanded on that as actually a a mistake of original leftist and uh, and Marxist thought the idea that the the workplace itself is the own, is the center of struggle for the left because that I mean that that relies on accepting uh the dominant narrative of work as one thing it completely excises um the unpaid labor and you know the people who don't work and people who work for free people you know it completely marks basically almost ignored women and almost ignored women's work traditional women's work and reproductive labor it was only in the mid 20th century that people started talking again about the means of reproduction if you read post marxist feminist theorists like um Silvia Federici Shalamit Firestone um they have a really really great critique and analysis of that idea that kind of it's it's a it's a bro leftist thing basically the idea that you know we have to have this one vision of what leftist struggle can be and i think um if we're going to have we have to update our idea of what work is and what human value is and i don't i'm not necessarily saying universal basic income is the answer to that i think it's a transitionary step it's a transitional demand um but uh it absolutely i don't think we can base many many left and far left groups are still basing their analysis on an, not just an idea of the workplace but idea of the factory that is a, that is 
not just decades, but centuries out of date because, you know, people... You know, Marx anticipated that the world would move on. The left, in some narrow quarters, seems not to have taken that advice. Um, not, not all of it, just, you know, some little historical reenactment societies, which, who I love dearly, by the way. They're very lovely people. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree with all of that. Um, but for me, at least, the UBI also has... It introduces another aspect of political power, which is the ability to choose not to take a job. Mm. Uh, I think for most people nowadays, you don't really have that choice, um, unless you're you know, independently wealthy or something like that. Uh, if a job comes along, you have to take it. The UBI suddenly gives individuals that power, but then also collectively, you know, imagine how much easier it is to withdraw our, power, our labor collectively uh, if we have something like a UBI. Um, so it's still, I think it helps workplace struggles, but I completely agree that workplace struggles are less and less central than they've ever been in history. Um, so we need to be thinking broader than just that. Uh, on the ethics of play, I think that's, yeah, really interesting suggestions. Um, I do think we need to revalue what we care about in society. Um, it is, you know, it's paid work that we care about socially. Um, your salary is like a big determiner of your value. Uh, and that's really problematic. We need to start thinking about that. Um, alternative values. I think the other broad like, step towards an ethics of play is just reminding people how terrible their work often is. Most people you know, hate Mondays. Uh, and and you know, just reminding people that you hate going to work, you hate waking up and having to go and do stuff that you don't want to do, um, re-inspiring that sort of hatred for uh, the time that's taken away from us is, I think, really useful. I'm, I'm sort of amused that, taken out of context, that could mean that the, the left's big message is remember how much you hate your work. But um, it's not a bad place to start. Yeah. There, there, there are a couple of a couple of things I, I'd like to sort of touch on. I mean, firstly, is this idea that the left is sort of allied with. Um, sort of the workplace and that's where the big struggle is taking place. I think that the idea of what is the workplace possibly linked in with, um, depending on the abstraction that you use, sort of neoliberalism and the idea that the work is no longer this sort of nine-to-five thing that increasingly... Uh, we're encouraged to sort of see every single moment. I mean, as a freelance journalist, there's very little distinction between my non-work life and my work life and I think for a lot of people that has become true that for example you know a lot of people you I remember um working in an office and my boss was given an iPhone by by the company and he sort of said wow they must really sort of value me and then of course the 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 sort of the subtext to that is he's now expected to kind of answer emails outside of work hours so there has been a sort of a breakdown of that in terms of um the idea of the automation of the workplace. Again, I'm still sort of yet to be convinced of that in a lot of cases. I think that, and it was interesting, I actually want to look in more detail at one of the footnotes in your book because you talk about, uh, I think, uh, one one statistic about ATMs and the impact that they have on human workers, um, saying that essentially the more ATMs, I believe I'm phrasing it correctly, the less human workers or the less humans are sort of needed. Um, I I saw a study which suggested the opposite, that looked at uh, banks in America America between, I think, 1993 and 2003, and actually found that the more ATMs there were um, in, in, in banks, those branches became more popular, and the humans who had previously been sort of bank tellers kind of doing the job of ATMs wound up transitioning into sort of what was called relationship banking, so sort of taking roles which kind of prized their humanity in a way that wasn't the kind of the mechanised work that they were doing previously. And then that links in, I think, with the third 
uh, uh, question, which is this idea of... Hang on, I'm blanking for a second. I was rattling through those so quickly. Um, the, is, is the idea... Um, hang on. Is technology authoritarian? I, I wish I could. Yes, indeed. Um, I had a really, really good answer for that as well. <laughs> I, I suppose all I can say with that is, again, I'm always sort of nervous about the idea of sort of ascribing a particular... I think it's more about the applications of these technologies. It's that famous quote, isn't there? Like, technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, and it's, yeah, sort of the opposite of the medium is the message. I think that so much of this is about sort of how these technologies are employed. I do remember, if I can quickly make that third point... <laughs> The third point I was going to make, I think we're seeing a really, really interesting trend at the moment with um, the rise of what some people have called the, uh, the, the, the artisan economy. And essentially the idea that as technologies get better and better, we're having to sort of reevaluate what it is that humans bring to the table. And I think we're seeing some really interesting trends. So, for example, back in, I think, sort of uh, about 2000, Amazon had two different editorial departments. It had the computer uh, science team who were sort of coming up with the recommender system, so the kind of you read Harry Potter, you may like Twilight, um, and the people who were coming up who were writing human <coughs> book reviews. And eventually they figured out the computer science people were selling way more books, so let's fire all the humans and we won't lose anything at all. Recently, we've seen Apple rolling out their new Apple Music service. And what's been interesting about this is that Apple is taking the opposite approach. They're not just having humans work as part of the systems, what's sometimes called artificial, artificial intelligence, where you have humans <laughs> working behind the scenes, sort of masquerading as, as machines. You're actually kind of emphasizing the idea that actually humans do have something quite valuable to bring in terms of sort of serendipity and in terms of a sort of the messiness of the flesh, the kind of the, the idea that actually humans do have something valuable. So I wonder if we'll see a pushback as we move forwards and we sort of say, you know, if we're... I mean, maybe a supermarket's too reductive a, a view of this, but if you say, you know, maybe not everything's about speed, maybe not everything's about efficiency, maybe this idea of sort of utilitarianism has a limit and that actually there are things that humans have to offer and that as we're able to automate more of the tasks which due to the kind of industrial revolution paradigm were broken down to kind of easily sort of mechanizable roles we have to start sort of re-evaluating what it is that humans can do that machines aren't capable of and nor do we want to hand those roles over to them oh, very good so First, I'd just like to begin by saying thanks so much to all of our speakers for an absolutely fascinating discussion, which I hope everyone in the audience has enjoyed as much as I have. And I would also just like to note that copies of all of the panel's books are available for sale at the Festival Bookstall, and I believe, hope, that the panelists will be around to sign copies of their books afterwards. And thirdly, please join me in thanking our speakers for a fascinating discussion.